still are considering the uh, the woman at the well. I thought I'd begin by making mention of something I saw uh, on uh, YouTube the other week. It was an interview by Tucker Carlson of Colonel Douglas McGregor. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about him, but he was, he's retired now, but he's uh, a very, very conservative individual. And I think President Trump tried to appoint him to a number of things, uh, and he was turned away by the liberals. It was very hard to get good people in certain places. But anyway, the short of it is, um, as I listened to this interview, which is quite lengthy, I guess it's about 40 minutes or so, um, I, I couldn't uh, turn away from thinking about Ezekiel 38 and 39 in view of what he was saying, because he was basically saying that Ukraine is not gonna win this war. And he was talking about how powerful Russia is and how people are being lied to. And over and over, he was going through various things. And I'm telling you what, the man is very, very knowledgeable of many things. And um, so I decided I was gonna copy the link and send it to a number of people in the hopes that they would uh, look at it themselves, but anyway, if you wanna see something that's really interesting and I think informative, and I think even though he doesn't talk about the Lord and the Bible in the interview, um, for somebody that reads the Bible, it made a lot of sense to me. So, Tucker Carlson interviewing Colonel Douglas McGregor As I was sitting uh, at my desk this morning uh, studying over some of these thoughts in this chapter, one of the things that came to my mind is how um, people typically think in life, how people typically think. And and in thinking these thoughts, the first reference that I go to is myself and how I have thought about many things in the course of my life. And when I go back in my thoughts to my youth, what I discover is that central to everything that I thought was myself. That was everything. It had to do with what I wanted and how I thought about things. And I went through the biggest part of my life thinking that how I think is the way everybody ought to think. And what I've discovered in my years is that everybody is essentially that way. Everybody. Uh, by nature, we're very proud of what we think. And um, if you want to know something about the power of the emotions behind what you've just heard, all you have to do is, in conversation with somebody, say, I don't agree. I don't agree. And just uh, notice what happens when you say that. I do not agree. I'm telling you that defense mechanisms will start coming out big time. I've, I've encountered some, some people that if you say to them you don't agree or even give 
the slightest insinuation that you do not agree. I have gotten long pages of written response from people because they were so resolved in their way of thinking and that they could not be wrong that they would actually sit down and dedicate long pages uh, justifying why they thought the way they did. Now, in saying that, I'm simultaneously saying that I was that way the biggest part of my life growing mm -hmm. up. And I think that I could venture to say rather safely that we're all that way. I don't think that I am uh, uh, <clears throat> an unusual soil sample of humanity. I think we're all alike. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When the Lord said, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, he wasn't just talking about me. He's talking about everybody. And, uh, and so these kinds of thoughts, I think, help us to grasp a little better the various passages that we study in Scripture. And now we're looking at this woman at the well. And I want you to think about the fact that she had been living her whole life up to this point with the center of everything being her and what she wanted and how she thought. And I don't think it's any different with anybody. And so another thing that I discovered over the years as I read and studied the Bible is that every single personality recorded in the Bible is a type of me. All of them, they're types of myself. It's, and I'm talking especially concerning those that were lost, those that were evil. When you read the word Pharisee, the first thing you ought to think about when you read that word in the Bible is yourself. And I tried to cultivate an attitude in reading the Bible to accept something as incriminating as that because they were the ones that crucified the Lord of glory, wanted him dead. And so getting off alone and thinking within yourself, is that really what you have wanted? That you have wanted Christ dead? Well, I learned in this church that there are different ways of killing people. You can shoot them with a gun, you can stab them with a knife, or you can ignore them in your mind. Just totally ignore them. That's the same as killing somebody. When you see an unfavorite person coming toward you, and you decide to go a different way, what's the difference between that and murder? What's the difference between that and wishing that that person didn't even exist? What's the difference in seeing that person as an intruder into your life and in your way of thinking and your way of doing? What is the difference? There isn't any. And I learned that right here in this church through the preaching that has gone on here in this church. That that is sinful. It's sinful. I've learned that it's pharisaical to look down on anybody and destroy them, essentially, in conversation with other people. In other words, have an unconstructive conversation in such a way that you totally forget how God thinks about that person. 
Well, is it not true that we think entirely different than God about people? And, and so it's been a, a long journey, a lot of times a slow, slow journey learning some of these things, but I believe that what I'm telling you is absolutely the truth. But we're never going to see these things if we do not get alone and ponder just how serious this problem is. It's huge. But this is the way we are, and it's the reason Christ came into this world to die in our place is because that's wicked, and we are wicked. So um, we're so self-centered. I want to show you something that I ran across just and studying some verses the other day. Uh, if you just turn your Bibles to Psalm 49, I'll show you something that helps us see a little bit better some of what I'm talking about here. Psalm 49. Let's read beginning at verse 6, and as we read these, I want you to think about how we think about life and about ourselves and the world in our nature. Now, verse 6, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. That he should still live forever and not see corruption. Now I want you to stop right there and just think about it. What do most people live for? Um, it's making a living. That's what most people live for. Occupation is just about everything. And uh, it, it's central to everybody's thinking. But when we go out there and earn money, who are we earning it for? We're earning it really for ourselves because we're self-centered to the core. And money is what finances our will. That's what it does. We all have an idea of how we want life to be. And we're not going to trust God for it. We trust ourselves for it. And if we're going to have what we want that's going to make us happy, then the dependence is totally on us. And so the world has been sold this bill of goods that if you go off to college and so forth and get all these degrees, then you can get out here and get a job and uh, you won't have to dig all your life. You might be able to sit at a desk or whatever and make big bucks without sweating well it's not in our nature to want to sweat for what we make it just isn't it's not in our nature and when the Lord in the Garden of Eden told Adam and Eve that by the sweat of their brow they would have to labor from then on this is part, in part, what he was referring to. It's part of the curse. And so everybody's trying to escape the curse and live a life where you don't sweat. You don't have to work. It's almost, you know, it's become the entitlement mentality. Um, but it, when, when it comes to thinking about the value of things, The truth is, we're going to die. 
And when things happen in our life to bring that to our attention, that we are terminal and we are going to die, then the thought that should come to our mind is will what we have worked for all our life, which is a dollar bill, can we somehow or other use that in any way to save our souls? I mean, what kind of value can you put to the human soul? Well, it tells us right here. Verse 7, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Well, if you can't save somebody else, the Lord is trying to tell us we can't save ourselves either. If we can't save ourselves with what he has to say right here. Because of verse 8, for the redemption of their soul is precious. It's precious. How precious? Well, it's so precious that you would have to pay an eternal price. An eternal price. What is an eternal price? Have we ever thought what a thought about what an eternal price would be? How long would you have to work? Well, you'd have to work forever. I mean, if you're just thinking about the, the preciousness of the human soul, you would have to work forever to be able to purchase salvation. Well, you remember when the Lord Jesus said, I must be about my father's business? Well, he was talking about work. You remember what he said when he was hanging on the cross and he said it is finished? Well, how long did he work to pay our sin debt? I'll tell you how long he worked. Forever. You might say, well, how can you say that? Well, I can say that because he is eternal. He is eternal. And what he did was eternal. Absolutely. It was eternal. He worked for all eternity, which is without beginning of days nor end of life, to save our souls. We're that precious. And he shed his precious blood. He shed his precious blood. I mean, how can we swallow up death and victory with our blood? I mean, the thing that's amazing to me about the Bible in trying to see God from his perspective as compared to ours is that God was trying to show us how powerful he is in his weakest state. Because we couldn't comprehend God in his most powerful state. Because we got these little puny minds and we can't take in the glory of the power of God and these eternal things. And so the Lord came into the world and he says, I'm going to give you something I think you can begin with with your little puny mind and understanding something about me. I'm going to show you my power through my weakness. Well, what is the weakest thing that you can think of to demonstrate the weakness of man. Well, I'll tell you what it is. If you've ever been close to a person that is dying and you've been right there with them up to the moment almost before they did, and I've experienced this, I've actually experienced this where a person actually died right in front of me. 
And uh, I can't think of anything that is weaker than that. When a person is getting ready to slip out of this world into that dimension called death, that person at that point is absolutely without strength. Absolutely without strength. Folks, do we realize that this is how God went about demonstrating to us his eternal power? It was in the weakness of death. God comes into the world and demonstrates to us in the weakness of death by being crucified right in front of our eyes on a hill and brought up in daylight. But he swallowed up death in victory and rose from the dead. Now, this is God's manner of helping these little puny minds of ours to enter into the immensity of the power of God Almighty, the Creator. He had to demonstrate it in ultimate weakness that we were acquainted with. And I think all of us have experienced in some measure that aspect of it, like getting sick, getting sick with the flu, getting so sick that you can't hardly move, you can't get out of bed, you can't eat, you have no appetite, you're so weak. And so the thought comes to our mind, what are we going to do? Good grief, am I going to die? And maybe some of you have been sick enough that you wondered and despaired of, of life. What are you even going to survive? And so we're acquainted with weakness. And so God comes into this world and, and goes through this life of suffering and rejection and despair and sorrow. And finally, he allows sinful man, when he could have done something about it, he could have called legions of angels at any point. But he went into death and the grave to manifest how powerful he is. And he swallowed up death in victory. Do we know the value of the human soul? Do we know the power of God and what God is able to do? When he resurrected himself from the dead, he did it as evidence that he can do the same for you and me. And so the thought is, how precious is the soul? How precious? It is so precious that only God could do anything about purchasing it. He's the only one. The Lord uses a parable, the parable of the pearl of great price. And how that he sold everything that he had to buy that one pearl. He sold everything that he had. Everything that he had. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, Yet for our sakes, he became poor. Why did he become poor? Because he was willing to give everything that he had. Everything to purchase us. That's the price of the human soul. You need to think about that when you read this verse. Now let's keep reading. I want to show you something. Look at verse 9. That he should still live forever and not see corruption. Talking about us. This is why he died. Is so that we could still live forever and not see corruption. 
Verse 10, for he seeth that wise men die. Wise men die. Likewise the fool and the brutish men, uh, person perish and leave their wealth to others. And so the thing to think about here is when you work for money your whole life, you're not going to keep it. I don't care how big the stack is. I don't care if you become a zillionaire. You're going to leave every dime right here. Take nothing with you. Nothing. Because you're going to leave whatever you work for to somebody else. And Solomon said this about that, which is really discouraging. Are you going to leave it to a wise man or a fool? <clears throat> Parents need to think about that when it comes to their children. And I'll tell you what a fool is. A fool is a person that can't think about a thing in the world but this life. And how to have a better life right here. And money, to a great extent, is the mechanism for bringing that about the way we think naturally. And so you can worry yourself to death and struggle your entire life over a dollar bill and absolutely waste your life because you're going to die. And the thing of it is, what's really important when it comes right down to it, what is really important? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's the most important thing. And then spending the rest of your life praying to him about everything and putting your entire life in total surrender to him. Everything. All your worries, all your worries, all your struggles, Take it to him, and you leave it with him. Uh, as someone has said, when it comes to the problem of drinking and alcohol, the discovery of something that was so simple, it was a wonder why they didn't know it before somebody had to tell them. If you don't drink, you won't get drunk. If you don't drink, you won't get drunk. If you turn to Philippians, you don't need to do this. I'm going to just tell you. Philippians chapter 4. The Bible is telling us there, Paul is counseling us how to be happy. And he said, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, giving thanks. The principle of if you don't drink, you won't get drunk applies equally right there. If you're not anxious, you won't be anxious. But you know why a lot of people live with anxiety? It's because they keep drinking it. And the Lord says, if you don't want to be anxious, then stop being anxious. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's called the free will. Did you know that when you get up in the morning and you put your feet on the floor and you sit on the edge of your bed, you have the freedom with your free will to decide how your day is going to be. Are you going to live it with a good attitude or a bad attitude? Well, I'll tell you what. I may not be a very good example of my teaching, but I'll tell you this. I am so glad that I know enough about this subject that I can stand up here and at least talk about it because I do know the cure. If you refuse to be angry and anxious, then you won't be angry and you won't be anxious. 
if you refuse to drink, you won't get drunk. And life is just that simple. This is, this is not complicated. But I'm telling you, people will live with anxiety every day, worried about everything in the world. And folks, the Lord has purchased for us on Calvary's cross peace and joy, and we don't even know how to use it. And he's purchased it for us. It's there. It's a free gift. <clears throat> we can have it. Well, how do you get it? You have to die to the way you think. And you have to start letting that mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what's his mind like? Well, I'll tell you this. If you think that Jesus Christ was anxious, then you don't know him. He was not anxious. If you think the Apostle Paul was anxious, and when you met him, he was just worried about everything, you don't know the Apostle Paul. You're not studying the Bible. He's the one that wrote it to the Philippians. Be not anxious. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's not complicated. If you don't drink, you won't get drunk. If you refuse to be anxious, you won't be anxious. How simple is that? Well, again, I may be a pitiful example of what I'm talking about, but I'll tell you this, and I say it to myself, Every day, I refuse to worry about anything, and I don't. If I do, it's very short-lived. It's very short-lived. But it has taken me a long time to even learn enough about this subject to be able to say these words. But it's true. The woman at the well was a victim of this self-centered mentality of trying to have paradise her way and be happy her way. And so stay with me in Psalm 49 because I'm not done with that yet. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever. Their houses. And their dwelling places to all generations. Now notice this. They call their lands after their own names. Now I want you to think about that statement. They call their lands after their own names. In our self-centered way, we go about life trying to get stuff. And this is ours. I'm a classic example of it. I've written creeds on so many things that I have, and part of the reason I have is because it has a way of growing legs and walking off and not coming back. And so I've taken to writing my name on stuff. But I hope that that doesn't distract from the truth of what I'm saying right now from God's word because here's where it is. We look at everything in terms of ourselves, everything. Even our lands. But I want you to just turn your page over to the 50th chapter of Psalms. And I'll show you something. Look at verse 8. We'll start reading there. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats 
out of thy fold. Now notice what he says. This is God Almighty speaking. For every beast of the forest is mine. Okay, if you get on, uh, what is it, 73 Highway out of Candor and you start heading north, over on the left, there's some huge farm up there. And on the hills are all these cows. I'd imagine if you stopped in there and said, uh, whose farm is this? They'd probably say, well, it's mine. Are they your cows? Yeah, they're my cows. I don't think I'd go up to him and say, well, that's not true. Because those cows belong to God. <laughs> but it says it right here. It says it right here. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. But in the previous chapter, we call it after our own name. Why? Because in our nature, that's exactly how we think. Is mine, mine, mine. And I know that I've spent the biggest part of my life thinking exactly that way. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Well, does that change that if we put our name on big posts as people enter our ranch? This is my ranch. This is my farm. Well, God is reminding us that we don't have anything. You don't have anything. And if we're not careful, a lot of times we'll spend our whole life on our house, on the things we want. And that's not, not what life's all about. Because Jesus Christ gave everything that he had to purchase our soul. Everything. It's the most selfless thing you will ever think about in your whole life is the selflessness of Jesus Christ our Lord. We are not that way. We are selfish. He is selfless. And we see it, the selflessness of the Trinity. And that the Father was willing to give his only begotten Son. The Father was willing to give his only begotten Son. His only begotten Son. We need to focus on only begotten Son. That was his everything. His only begotten Son. The love of the Father for his Son is incredible. But the selflessness of the Father... As he looked at us, he loved us enough that he would give his only begotten son. Now, what kind of value does that put on your soul? Is, is the soul precious? Is the soul of a man precious? Could we ever, apart from God, come up with what's needed? to purchase our own redemption? I don't think so. Because everything that God is and possesses in the way of his infinite wisdom, knowledge and understanding and power, along with everything that he possesses, which is the universe, And his message in this book is that he was willing to give it all up. Everything. Everything. To 
to purchase one pearl of great price. I'll tell you something, the value that God Almighty places on your soul, if you were the only person that has ever lived, he would have done it. If Adam and Eve had been the only two people that would ever exist, he would have done it. He did it right there. When he killed those lambs to cover them with coats of skins, that was his death. And through the weakness of his own death, he was going to show the world his power and what he was willing to do with his power. And that is give up everything. Uh, so that he could have us. Um, and so when we get into this fourth chapter, you might wonder how all this relates to it. Well, I can tell you, think about this woman. She was living this selfish life that I've been describing, self-centered life, going from one man to another, trying to find some kind of belongingness. We all want to belong. We want to have a sense of purpose, and we want to be happy, and she'd go from one man to the next, hoping that he would be her fulfillment, and that he would actually love her and not objectify her, turn her into just an object of pleasure, she was looking for love. She was looking for security. But she didn't get it. And she didn't have it at this time that she was sitting there at that well. She didn't have it. Jesus Christ knew it. He knew all about her. I want you to think about it because in this passage, the woman eventually goes into town and says, come see a man that told me all that ever I did. When we reverse it and we look toward heaven, what does the world know about God? Precious little. And this is the fullness of the Godhead in a book. And people don't study it. People will go out here and read fiction books before they'll read this book. They'll order all kinds of books that have to do with the world and how things are going to affect me because we are the center of everything. But the center of everything for Jesus Christ was you and me. And he proved it because he was willing to give up the riches by his grace and mercy. And though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. That we, through his poverty, might be rich. That's the message of this book. From cover to cover, that's what the message of this book is. But here was a woman trying to have all of these things without God trying to struggle along and be happy. I guarantee she was worrying every day about many things. She was thirsty. Thirsty. She went to the well to get water. But what she didn't understand is that the message of this book is spiritual. And the reason it is is because our problem is spiritual. And that's why it's written the way it is. The Lord is trying to take us away from thinking earthly things and making that the precious thing, like the water in Jacob's well. Well, she was actually going there to drink 
based on somebody else's labors. She didn't dig the well. I think a lot of people go to church that way. They come and sit. I'm not going to study the Bible. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to labor in the word and doctrine. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let the preacher or the teacher do that. And I'm just going to drink from his digging. And that's the way we are in our nature. But you see, the world thinks about God collectively. This is my church. This is my family. This is our congregation. This is my denomination. But Jesus Christ didn't die for the denomination. He didn't die for the family. He died for you. Right by yourself. And I believe that if a person does at some point come to the realization of our desperate need for a one-on-one personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that person is missing how much God loves them. God loves us as an individual, as though no one else existed on the face of the earth. He loves us. And he would have done this that we read about in Psalm 49 if we had been the only person on, on the planet. He'd have done it. We're that special. That's where identity comes from. It's that kind of understanding that reverses it all so that we die to what we used to live for. And the Lord converts us and brings us to himself. He brings us to himself to realize that he is everything that we ever will need for all eternity to come. So... This woman goes back into town and says, I want want you to come and see a man that told me all that ever I did. And the thought that comes to my mind is when you reverse that, how much do we know about him? He knows everything about us. But some Christians, when they go out here, professing Christians, and they get on a a one-on-one conversation with somebody about this church, coming to this church, or understanding the subject of salvation, and they don't know enough about it to even have a conversation. Well, how much do you need to know to be a witness? How much do you need to know? Do you have to go to the seminary to know? She didn't. And she went into the city right by herself with the the very little that she knew. And guess what? The whole crowd listened to what she had to say. And went and found him and said, now we believe because we've met him ourselves. We have come to Christ and we've met him ourselves. What did that woman know? What does a person have to know to be a a witness for Jesus Christ? I'll tell you one thing. You don't have to be a theological scholar. You don't have to be that. You can be just a little person that has lived a very, very sinful life. But you've come to an understanding of something that's so simple and so basic. If you don't drink, you won't get drunk. How about this one? Can you save yourself from death? No, 
I know who can. Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever believeth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? How complicated is that? Okay, you can't save yourself. You can't raise yourself from the dead, but I know somebody that can. His name is Jesus Christ. Come and see a man that told me all that ever I did. And they came and met him and got saved. How simple is that? What do you have to know to be a Christian? A Christian witness? Very little. Very, very little. What kind of time have we got? We're out of time, basically. I guess we could just stop right here. We're just about out of time. So. Jim Fry, lead us in prayer, brother. Thank you.